Welcome on into the show. You're here, you made it. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur, and there's no canceling his season. It's Benny Horowitz. Right. Danny, I like I even I, I like how I texted you saying I quit and you didn't believe me. <laughs> that, I think it's a testament to my character. The fact that you wouldn't even believe that I quit. I was like, man, he's not going to big time you that much. <laughs> it's funny. You know, that happened to me once. This was, I, I may be dating myself because it's, it's a story from MySpace. <laughs> but I had a relationship that went wrong. And one of the uh, ways of retribution from my ex was to go onto a social media site, MySpace, write most of the women I knew on there and writing very lewd and sexual things and telling them, really terrible stuff from my account and it's the first time i ever had the real highlight of being a nice guy is a long game because every single person who she wrote on that website wrote me back either asking a if i got hacked or b if i was okay but not one of them not one of them was like fuck you benny that's bullshit so i think it's good to have a good track record then then when uh, when some malfeasance comes up, uh, you know you have something to stand on. So I like that when I wrote "I quit" to you, you didn't even believe it was true. All right, man. I you're... mean, you were a fucking ten minutes late to your own That's... Zoom meeting. Unprofesh. Unprofesh. Oh man, you almost gave me the perfect segue. But speaking of stories about ex-girlfriends, a guy who wrote about you know some of your past relations. And not mm-hmm. in like a, a weird way, in like a completely professional way. He's Robert Mays of The Ringer, yeah. NFL writer, joining the show. Finally got him on. That's a good conversation coming up in a little Chicago bit. Chicago's own. Chicago's own. Uh, are, are you going to give him the same questions we gave to Mr. Baltz about Chicago movies and stuff like that? Yeah, we'll give him some. All we'll right, give him right, some. Right. Of course, we got to talk about pizza. I mean, <laughs> we're sitting here recording from the home of the best pizza in the world. So I believe that conversation is always worth it. I love it. I love it. But, Benny, let's waste no time today. Let's get into this day in music history. Benny, on this day, the trial started for Jim Morrison of The Doors after being charged with dropping his pants and exposing himself in front of a stunned Miami crowd of 12,000 people. Now... The funny part of this story, you know, if we've watched the movie, we've seen Val Kilmer do it. And uh, but what's odd about this is he may never have done it. And I didn't realize that. I thought this was one of those, you know, uh, etched in stone kind of things. But it turns out Jim Morrison vehemently denied he ever did it, even to the point of rejecting a plea bargain that wound up leading to him being jailed and fined as a result. Also, there is no evidence of this lewd act. I know it's not the iPhone days where there's you know that many pictures, but 12,000 humans and nobody caught this act on camera. Robbie Krieger of The Doors was quoted as saying, and I quote, they were complaining about Jim whipping it on stage, which he didn't do. 500 photos were entreated as evidence in trial and not one showed anything of the sort. I think it was all very politically motivated. People were running for office, so we were a good target. So this was a, perhaps a very elaborate campaign against the doors set up by you know, local police force or, or whoever wanted to bring them down and get some ratings. But then, of course, there's always two sides to every story. 
a writer for the Miami Herald named Larry Mahoney wrote in his article about the event that many of the, tw this is again in quotes, many of the 12,000 youths said they found the bearded, which I love how in the <laughs> 70s having a beard meant you, you know, you dance with the devil anyway. Uh, the, the bearded singer's exhibition disgusting. Included in the audience were hundreds of unescorted juniors and senior high school girls. Morrison appeared to masturbate in full view of audience, screamed obscenities, and exposed himself. So this is two very, very different tales. One of which was saying we did nothing. The other saying I masturbated on stage in front of 12,000 people. And we will never know the truth because Morrison was still appealing this and it was still unresolved when he passed away in 1971. Benny, I got to ask that, this. Huh? I got to ask this. Great story. What is the closest you've ever seen to any sort of Jim Morrison behavior on stage? Uh, I've seen some nudity on stage. Uh, I've seen people get into it. Um, I've even had some instances where like really, really hot show and I'll, you know, wear like little running shorts or just some. I've, I've played in my underwear hmm. and I'm like, oh. There's a chance at the right angle you might see a <laughs> testicle right now, but uh, no, I've never had a a very specific nudity story. Um, nobody in my projects has ever uh, taken anything more than a butt out, but it can be dangerous business. Uh, some friends of mine from New Brunswick, a band called Scream Hello, decided to moon a, a man on the side of the road in North Carolina. <laughs> this man followed them for seventy five miles called the police and subsequently charged them with lewd acts on the road where they have a criminal record in North Carolina now. So not everyone's into this. You know, you got to uh, be careful who you show your business to. <laughs> Danny, word to the wise. Remember, this is sage wisdom. You can't get anywhere else. <laughs> exactly. Only on the tune-up. Well, speaking right. of sage wisdom, on this day in 1966, John Lennon in Chicago said that the... Beatles are bigger than Jesus. So I figured it's apropos with our guest from Chicago today, the Beatles, the music, everything on this day in 1966, John Lennon. How about that? I love how much Lennon gets in here. Oh, it, what like, a punk rocker. You, you know? can't go through this list without something every day being of the Beatles, which I guess I know. I, like it's crazy. It's fun. You know what else? When I was doing research for this, I did have the opportunity to tell a Paul McCartney drug story. Oh. He got arrested for drugs on this day as well. Oh, we got to uh, save that. I do have one more to throw at it. I love it. Since it, was, it. it was so controversial during our, uh, our tournament and the fact that, I'll go on the line as saying you are nearly anti-Madonna. In 1985, <laughs> Madonna's Like a Virgin became the first album by a female to be certified for 5 million sales. Wow. I mean, come on. You almost left her off the final 64. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, man. There was, there was bigger fish to be fried. You can there sell a lot, but that, that, does that mean that you're impactful? I don't know. Yeah, to a point. I mean, it goes on our Garth Brooks conversation oh. from the last episode, you know, like, listen, I've been to a lot of shows where I've, you know, especially a festival or something in Europe where I barely even heard of the band playing. And I see it and I don't understand it and I don't know why people like it, but a lot of people do. And it's doing something for someone out there, yeah. you know? Like Katy Perry has like a higher selling album than Thriller. But I mean, you can't really judge her music impact because it's been 
zero and a, and 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 a small world actually the the person who was responsible for styling madonna's jewelry which was obviously extremely iconic in the 80s and created a whole generation of a look uh ran into my wife at the dog park in jersey city how about he's this? a local look at this he's a local so the person who uh framed madonna's entire look in the mid 80s is a Jersey City local. You might have walked by a hundred times. Everything comes back to the old JC. That's it. All right, coming up, he is a staff writer for The Ringer. He's noted football expert, but what, what we found out in this interview is that his knowledge for food and music is just as strong. He is Robert Mays, and he is coming to you next. I really didn't realize how much I missed the minutia of sports broadcasts until I didn't have them for a while and then I had them again. Mm. So like I was talking uh, the first time the Cubs played, I was just sitting there listening to the games. Right. And just the tones of Len Casper who does the play by play. Mm -hmm. And then Adam Amin did the second game. And I was like, man, this is so soothing. Yeah. I just didn't realize how much I missed just having this, I don't know the rhythms of it. It almost kind of connects with your own biorhythms in this weird way. And I'm just sitting on the couch and it's just calming me down. Yeah. This yeah. is very strange, but it definitely is having a real effect right now. Sure. Oh, I could, I mean, I could listen to a record of John Sterling's voice. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, like, you know, there's something about the Yankees on the radio on a warm summer night that just, I'm like a baby under a blanket sucking my thumb, you know? <laughs> it just brings me to that place. Oh, well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, we got to start here. Every time a guest comes on, and anytime, especially like a sports writer comes on, there's a good chance they're a Gaslight Anthem fan. Pretty good chance that's how we get them on the show. <laughs> I got to know, first Gaslight song you heard, and first time you saw them live. First Gaslight song I heard, I think it was actually Here's Looking at You, Kid. Mm. I think that it was in college and my buddy was showing it to me. And this would have been around like 2009, I want to say. And my buddy was talking about him and whatever. And I think that's the first song he played for me. And I vividly remember in the spring of 2010, when I was moving out of my house at the University of Missouri, we lived in this terrible little shack <laughs> just off campus. The floor as it went into the wall was sloping. So there was like a six inch gap between the bottom of the floor, the bottom of the wall and where the floor was and a groundhog lived in, lived in the walls. It was a terrible place, but we had Only a lot of fun there. Only things you could get away with college kids, you know? It was incredible. I, I, I think I paid like $300 a month in rent or something to live in that place. I can't believe we all survived. But I remember vividly cleaning out that apartment and just putting the 59 sound down front to back and just listening to it. And that was the first time I really sat in that record. I was probably about two years late to it. And then the first time I ever saw them live, I think I told Benny the story. I was in the, I was in, in I was just out of college. I was at the Boston Globe and I was an intern at the Boston Globe and Fenway is directly across the street mm -hmm. from the House of Blues in Boston. Right on Lansing Street, yeah. Yep, and I play, I covered a Red Sox game. I filed my story, it was one of the first stories that I filed. I wanna say it was in the, the show was in the summer. And I walked across the street right to the show. And that's the first time I saw them. And I think that was my first of, I think I've seen them, you guys 23 times now. 
right around there. So that was my first one. So I've crammed them in to like yeah. a pretty yeah. good time frame, yeah, yeah. especially considering you didn't do any shows from like 2017 <laughs> through last year. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did pretty good. I got my money's worth. That's awesome. I love that House of Blues. That's the time Ian Perkins comes back from a show or one day, like I thought he just went to eat and he's got uh, grass from Fenway in like a paper envelope. <laughs> that sounds right. He's like, bro, bro, I met some guy. He let me in. It was fucking so cool. I wish you were there, but here's some grass. I pulled some grass for you. So I still have a, a white a white envelope with some Fenway grass, thanks to the iMath. The unstoppable enthusiasm he can have for things is just Crazy. something we should all try to bottle yeah. up and just uh. bring to our own lives. I really appreciate that from him. You know what? He he's he's the cooler. So <laughs> so he I, here's a, here's a here's an example. We were at a show. Uh, it was in North Carolina in Charlotte and right across the street from the venue is actually a, a Jersey style diner. The guy had taken the old Boundbrook diner, which was like a half RV, had it shipped down to North Carolina and converted it into like a Jersey style diner down there. And serendipitously, this thing was right across from the venue, which was amazing. And we're in there after the show. We had had a couple drinks and there was a few guys at the bar of the restaurant. And one of them is, you know, uh, on the slide, kind of just like taking anonymous pictures behind him of us, like shoving our faces in a booth, you know, probably trying to get <laughs> pictures of Brian. I had had a couple and I'm a very friendly guy with fam I'll talk to anyone. I'll mix it up with anyone. But, yo, don't do that shit. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, like yeah. sketch. Like, what the fuck? So. You know, I get I get my mean goggles on. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the guy. I'm like, "You fucking serious? Like like that? You want to say something?" And the guy just turns around, just clocks me. You know what I mean? He's just staring. And then I'm oh, getting. Oh God! I mean, you hit you. I was like, I don't want to hurt this story. He doesn't answer, and he's just staring and staring. And I'm like, and I'm starting to feel a little more worked up. And I'm like, oh, here we go. About to pop. And literally, I don't know, like magic. Before I knew it, 45 seconds later. I'm back in a conversation with someone else at the table eating hash browns. Ian Perkins is fully engaged with the entire bar. <laughs> All four of them. Bro, bro, what about this? What about this? And we both <laughs> forgot about each other within 45 Incredible. seconds. He is the great cooler that there's ever been. And, and if there's anything I've learned from a, a touring party, which I think is the most similar that a, a, even a team traveling could mm -hmm. be, you know, like, you need these people around, you know, when they talk about the glue guys and things like that, like mm -hmm. you're, you're wondering how Jared Dudley is still getting this much love on every <laughs> Chase Daniel. Up. Yeah. Chase Daniel is going to be a backup quarterback until I'm dead before I'm dead. Like I right. will be long gone off this earth when he's not getting two years for 18 million somewhere. <laughs> is he the ultimate glue guy you can think of? Backup like quarterbacks. Well, Josh McCown, I think is always okay. going to have that trophy. I mean, if somebody, if a quarterback got hurt this year, or let's say a quarterback got tested positive, somebody sure. need a quarterback off the street. Josh McCown's probably, how old do you think Josh McCown is? 42, 43? Sounds right. I, I guarantee you that he would be one of the first guys. On, he's 41, so he's younger than Tom Brady. He's Drew Brees' age. He would be the first guy in a short list. Yeah. They did actually an ESPN Daily episode about, I think, today that I want to go listen to about him having to learn 16 different playbooks. <laughs> yeah. The guy is used to it. So he's definitely up there. I think that Chase Daniel has one of the reasons they keep him around is he's just a great guy to have around.
Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. When you're a backup quarterback, one of the things you need to be able to do really well is play golf and drink beer with the assistant coaches. <laughs> right, right. That's right, why right. they sign you to have that job. So yeah. if you're good at those two things and you're just a kind of chill dude, you can make a lot of money for a long time. <laughs> sure. They're like the bass players of rock and roll. <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All bass players. I'm just kidding. Sort of. All right, let's say keyboard players. You you can't there you, go. There you, you go. can't go around being like a hired gun keyboard player and be a dick. <laughs> like those two things are just not going to work. Like you got to be easy to be around if you want that job. For I sure. think that it definitely aligns. I think back of quarterbacks, you will see a lot of guys who get further by just their general personality than their actual skill set. Makes sense. Yeah. Now that being said, I had to ask you. So you walk into an NFL locker room. Not not right now, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, when, clearly, when the world yeah. wasn't on fire. And, like, what is the most common music you hear in there? There isn't music, like, playing over the locker room everywhere you go. Guys will okay. play it from a little bit speaker at their lockers. But it's some kind, some form of rap. I mean, just hip-hop, hip-hop in general is definitely the the soundtrack of locker rooms when there's music playing. But music is not – it's funny. Music is kind of a strange thing in a football context huh. because it, I actually wrote a story about the Packers last year, and one of the mo- – it was kind of about how their culture had changed under Matt LaFleur. And one of the fascinating things I learned when I did, was doing that story is that previously under McCarthy, the players would not be able to pick the soundtrack. Okay. It was just t- – every time you go – I love this, going to – training camps or whatever, and just hearing whatever the music is. Because sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's like stuff that guys that age would probably like. A lot of the times it's not. Like a decent amount of time, it's just jock jams bullshit. So that's what it was under the Packers. It was just terrible, just like the Space Jam soundtrack for all of practice. So the guys went to LeFleur early in camp and were like, can we please pick the music? Like this is a small thing. And they had like a little request system that okay. the guys would be able to pick their songs, but that's not normal. Right. So just because it's an NFL team, it doesn't mean the guys are picking the music. I've heard a lot of bad music at football practice. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because I love any given Sunday so much, but I imagine <laughs> that battle, you know, there's, you know, Latimer in the corner with all like the white linemen just blasting metal or country or something like that, you know, fighting with the wide receiver core who's playing something else. That, that, that was in my head. That is not typically how it goes. For the most part, guys have their headphones on, and if they want to listen to something, they can put it on. Some guys have little speakers. The loudest I've ever heard music in locker rooms is after teams win, and then it's some version of whatever. Now, just the standard is dreams. I heard dreams and nightmares in every single locker room after they win. I mean, obviously, when the Eagles won, that's one of the coolest moments I've ever seen is when that, like, the song kicks in, and I was in the locker room when that happened. But the cool. Chiefs were playing it when they won the Super Bowl, too. So now it just seems like everybody's having Everyone it. Does, it's yeah. a great song. I don't blame them. It's lost its luster a little, though, now. now yeah, in, I mean, in, the Eagles version was the best version and yeah. always will be. Sure. In, in all your years, have you, have you either been turned on to music by a player or turned a player on to something? The only time I've really had an uh, in-depth conversation with an athlete about music is I wrote a story about Connor Barwin. Mm-hmm. maybe I want to say seven years ago now we were I did a story a couple things kind of popped online I think there was maybe like a BuzzFeed story or something about how hipster and weird his Instagram was okay and he was like hanging out with the guys from like tan lines and oh, he was okay. writing 
he was do he was on the Texans at the time, and he was actually doing some like experiential music writing for the Houston Weekly oh. down there while he was playing. And my editor at the time was like, "This is pretty cool, you know, in a, in a game in a sport where having a personality is typically vilified, sure. and guys are told to tamp it down. This seems like someone who's really trying to embrace it." So yeah. he had just signed with the Eagles, and I just thought it was a really interesting idea to like explore. He had just moved there, essentially. He'd been there for a few months. So how does somebody engaged in food, engaged in music, engaged in culture, in a way a lot of NFL players aren't, how do they explore a new city? So he and I went to see Animal Collective together <laughs> wow. like two hours after a Giants-Eagles game. Crazy. At the, um, what's that venue in Philly? It's not the Electric Factory. It's the- A filmer? No. I can't remember. It's fairly new. That's going to annoy me. I don't know. <laughs> That's going to annoy me. But um, we did, and it was really fun. And then, so he he would just kind of, we would talk about stuff. He was really into, like, uh, St. Uh, St. Lucia at the time, and we like we would go back about a lot of different bands. It was fun. Nice. Yeah, that's and, probably it, though. Other than that, it's I talk with guys a lot, a lot of food. And I always ask Aaron Rodgers what he's watching. <laughs> so, But if music is typically not something we get into. <laughs> now, so the NBA has Damian Lillard. He's like a, like, Actually, now respected in the music business. Who in the NFL, Loki, is the most talented musician, singer that you've come across? I haven't really come across any personally. Yeah. I know that I think there are a couple guys. Like, like Le'Veon Bell, I know, mm. you know, was kind of was into that for a while. I don't really know anybody else. I'm sorry, that's I that's a terrible answer, but <laughs> I don't I don't think there are any guys who are like well known for that. I don't even know anybody that like plays guitar. Yeah. I have stumbled across nobody that does that stuff. The only I hang out and talk to a lot of linemen. So the kind of the hobbit area of our <laughs> conversations mostly goes in a food direction. Yeah. Because okay. all of those guys barbecue. So when I'm kind of doing that, like what are you into like lately? Yeah. And I because I just got a smoker. It definitely goes more in a food direction than anything okay. else. Very nice. They want to talk about smoking meats. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Which at this point, it's it's really scary because that's one of those areas that is really esoteric and people who are into it are really into it. <laughs> right. It could be super annoying. Sure. And I just feel that happening to me. Like yeah, because you bought a smoker, there, right? It's terrible. I just got one. It's terrible. because I So I just made – my buddy came over on Saturday and I made – pulled pork or i made ribs and i made some pork belly and we were talking about the science of me the meat and like why it has to get to certain temperatures and everything else and he's like you're getting into this so it's like yeah i know it's terrible <laughs> no one that doesn't do it wants to talk about it it's just right. one of those things so i'm trying to control myself when i get into mixed company at this point you gotta be careful every subculture has clothes so you gotta be careful you don't start dressing like a barbecue guy i don't know what it is I think that that if among the things you and I could talk about, but I think that's the thing you'd be least interested in is yeah. what smoked meat tastes like. You know, it's I, I know I've been a vegetarian 25 years, but I'm not I'm not really opposed to this stuff because it's like I I always appreciate a, a craftsman or woman, you know? Sure. I, get I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. someone who's like, if you're going to be into it and you're 100 percent into it and you're passionate and you have different theories and things and you're actually putting some thought into it. Good on you, just as long as you're not an asshole about it, you know? Yeah, Food bother. is something I've definitely come around to as I've gotten older. I have watched a horrifying amount of Top Chef in the past <laughs> month. An amount of Top Chef that would scare another person. Like, my girlfriend is just, she's absolutely, 
she can't even look at me when it's on the TV right now because she's just so ashamed. And that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, man, these people are so good at yeah. this tiny little <laughs> sector of the world. And it's made me want to get better at it. Yeah. I'm sitting there hovering over the purchase button on uh, Masterclass because I want to know how to make like sauces yes. and stuff yeah. now. It's Good. bad. It's just a road that I'm really scared to go down. Have you ever seen the Sushi Man documentary? No. You got it. You got to see it immediately. Okay. So okay. it's, it's, it's right. about a, a guy, a, you know, we'll keep it short, but it's about like the most uh, prestigious sushi man in Tokyo who owns this okay, tiny restaurant with like eight seats. He has these really bizarre, uh, you know, comprehensive ways of preparing his food. His son has been under him for like 40 years, but isn't allowed to take over until he dies because of the Japanese hierarchy. Mm -hmm. But you finish that documentary and you just have a Kobe Bryant focus and ambition <laughs> on anything you're doing. You know? Yeah, if yeah. you're taking a yeah. shower, you're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like scrubbing that armpit. Like, like it's, it, it really is like a fuel to, to do something like really, really proficiently, you know? I'll watch it. Cause I, I love sushi. What's yours go-to sushi? Cause I'm sure you eat it. I go, I'll do like an avocado roll, something okay. like that. It's not, you know, sushi is one of those things where as a vegetarian, I've just learned to like, I pass most of the time. It's fun. There are better Asian foods that are vegetarian than sushi. Like there are yeah, so many 100%. better options you can go to. I'm usually just kind of, kind of bored food. and still hungry after about half an hour. So it's- Yeah, not, see, not it's- <laughs> Sweet potato sushi is underrated. That's definitely my it vegetarian friends. That's where they go. That's the route they choose because it's a little heartier. No, so, man, dude, the Robert, vegetarian had... bow buns, dude. The vegetarian bow buns oh, are, those are, are the spot. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> great. <Those laughs> sounds great. So let's talk a little football, if that's okay. Now, that's what so I do. We got to pull the Band-Aid just for me right off the bat. Tell me what you really feel about Daniel Jones. <laughs> be gentle. Be gentle. I think he could be fine. I mean, I, I honestly think he could be okay. I, overall, I think that they're in a really strange position because yeah. it's difficult when the timeline of the front office and the timeline of the coaching staff are different, right? Yes. So, I mean, you have a front office that's really on its last legs and it needs some immediate success in order to keep their jobs, I would assume. Right. I mean, I don't want anybody to get fired, but my assumption is that they're starting, the, the patience is starting to wear a little thin with Gettleman and the job he's done. Yeah. And then you have should. a coaching staff that's coming in cold. Right. So it's tough. I think it kind of puts you in no man's land a little bit, especially now, you know, in this weird season, you know, you kind of want to put the giants in the same little group that Washington and Carolina are in yeah. where it's a real full scale rebuild. You're tearing things down. This is an experimental season to a certain degree. You're really just trying to feel your way through what the future might look like. I'd argue that the Jets are kind of in that in the same middle ground that the Giants are, yeah. where it's the coaching staff that has more urgency right. as the front office right. is trying to slow sure. play it a little bit. So I think that right now, you know, obviously the Solder thing is, is a little bit of a wrinkle, but he's not very good anyway. He's been really struggling. So it's I think they have enough there personnel-wise to allow him to succeed. I think the players are good enough where you're going to get a decently full picture of who he is. My problem is I don't have much faith in the infrastructure outside of the actual players on the field. Right. Is Jason Garrett going to be an offensive coordinator you can get excited about? <laughs> yeah. They have a lot of guys on that team in that staff that 
you know, fill different roles at higher levels at other places. I mean, Freddie Kitchens is on that staff. Yeah. You know, Garrett. It's like, I just don't know what it's going to look like. So here's my thing with quarterbacks for the most part is that you have two or three guys, maybe. I think it's a very small group, no matter how many players it actually exist, consists of, that can ex- be successful independent of the things around them. Right. You know, whatever you drop sure. them into, they're going to be fine. With everyone else, I think it's about fine-tuning the different elements of your coaching staff, your scheme, and the players. Right. And I just think Daniel Jones is firmly in that group of quarterbacks, and I have my questions about those different sorts of factors. Right. So. I think he's plenty talented enough to succeed in the right situation. I just don't know if that's the right situation. Okay. I can I can live with that. Now, if we move down I-95 a little bit, it, on the field, outside of the Darius Geis situation, it seems, seems like it's been a steady kind of buildup for Washington outside of, you know, the whole casual stuff that's going on off the field. Now, when it comes to that, though, nine different trademarks for the different names that they're eyeing down. What kind of stuff have you heard about about the direction of their brand and what they're trying to do outside of trying to make numbers hashtags? I mean, I think that, like I said, they are firmly in this let's figure it out kind of camp. I mean, they have such a blank slate when it comes to the football side of this. And I think that they've empowered Ron Rivera to make a lot of choices. But they really there are so many positions on that team, whether it's running back, whether it's receiver, the moves they've made along the offensive line. I mean, they you let go, let Trent Williams go. I mean, they think that Sadiq Charles is somebody that can probably start for them. I mean, a guy that they got a little bit later in the draft. What's going to happen with Gibson, the guy from Memphis, now that the running back situation is a little bit unclear? They didn't go out and get another receiver. They essentially just kind of paved the way for McLaurin to kind of take over there as the guy. So they really slow played and their own team building process there. They essentially have said, we're going to go with in-house guys and we're going to see what we have in this draft class and the guys that are already on the roster. And I think that's a good choice. I mean, what they're, they looked at Amari Cooper and I know the only reason they looked at Amari Cooper is because they thought guys like that just don't hit free agency. Then they didn't want to spend up for anybody. They didn't, because I think that again, it's a real crossing of your timelines to spend up for a guy like that when you're firmly rebuilding doesn't really click, but he's just not the sort of player that ever hits the market and only could have because of what's going on in Dallas and all that confusion. And then not doing that and just saying, we're going to go with what we have here, I think is interesting. I think they're doing this on the field and with the players and everything else the right way after having a really extended stretch where they definitely weren't. Now, speaking of, of the, you know, people hitting the open market and their value, you know, the Jamal Adams trade, which, you know, they jumped on when, I, I don't know about the utmost of his value because of how much shit he talked, but was that um, some kind of an indication to you that the, the era of playing for draft picks might be coming to a close to a certain extent? In what sense? And the idea that it seemed like Seattle was in that point that they were like, I don't care about these picks. You know, there's such that, a low percentage of a 20 plus first round pick landing on something that's going to be significant for you that you may be seeing teams throw these picks out uh, uh, more than they used to. I feel like there is going to be some, it, it, I don't know if they're becoming less valuable. I think that there are differing opinions on it. I think that 
there are, it depends on the front office that you're talking to, because there are some front offices that are much more analytically forward where they're sitting there saying, we know this is the right way to build everything else. Right. But there are a lot of guys that still do this job with their gut, with, I, this is the type of guy I don't think I can get elsewhere. I'm willing to make this move. The, Jet, the Jamal Adams trade, I think, is specifically the t- deal where you look at it on both sides, and I sit there, and I don't really care to find out who won on paper. Because if you're right. doing that, it's the Jets. I mean, the Jets got two first-round picks. It's them. Sure. And they don't have to give him an extension. But I can still look at the choices both franchises made and say, I get it. I understand right. why each side would want to do this. Because in just like exactly what you're saying, are the draft picks becoming less, more or less valuable? I don't know. But right now, they're more valuable to the Jets than they are to the Seahawks based on right. the timeline that they're on. Sure. So I don't think you can say any blanket statement for the league as a whole. But I think that th- that trade especially really illuminates the thought process and the overall trajectory that those two franchises are on. Yeah, for sure. I love the tra- I love the trade. I huh. think it was great for for both sides. But it, I mean, ma- it makes total sense. I mean, if you're the Jets, it's one of those things where I had a GM tell me this week. I think it's you know, he's a very smart person. And I respect what he says, and he said, you know, you don't get better by subtracting good players. Right. And that's kind of how he thinks about it. But it. For the Jets, you can understand why they did it. I mean, this is a team that was so barren when it came to in-house talent. They're they're drafting so poorly, and they had done such a bad job of handing out contracts. I mean, that class that they let McCagden give out before Douglas got there, I mean, those contracts are just brutal. Ugly. And and so you're thinking about an Adams extension on top of that, and you don't have a lot of cheap, good, young talent. So getting two first-round picks, it's almost irresponsible not to take that deal if you're the Jets. Right. But if you're the Seahawks and you're sitting there, okay, we feel like we're close. You know, We're a 9-10 win team as a baseline, which when you have Russell Wilson, that's exactly what you are. And I think that's the presence of Russell Wilson is why you make that trade. Right. Because if the only reason you shouldn't trade future first-round picks is you don't know what they're going to look like. And if you're a team like Chicago when they made – the Khalil Mack trade, and you don't right. know about your quarterback, that's a potential top 10 pick yeah. a couple years down the road. Right. But with Seattle, that worst case scenario is off the table. So it makes sense to trade away those picks. So it's just sure. these teams are operating on such different timelines and such different mindsets. To me, it's really fascinating when you see a deal that both of them probably went to bed and they were like, you know what? That was good for us. I, I feel like we won that. And that's right. just hard to do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now, I, I'm a big Cam Newton fan myself. And I'm very excited that he went and got himself a good job. Say, say he's starting game one. What, what, what are you expecting for a full season of productivity from him? That's it. I don't know. There's so many mysteries around that. And I think the two biggest things, two biggest questions to ask are, one, how healthy is he? Right. Because that, that to me is the number one issue. And, and because it's the thing that's been holding him back the last couple of years. Sure. So – I mean, every, people that know more about this stuff than I do tend to think that the shoulder probably was going to be okay over the long run, and the foot is really what held him back last year. And if that's the case, if his foot is 100% healthy and the shoulder was on the right track, and we see, well, not the Cam Newton we saw in 2015, but still a healthy, fully functional version of a slightly older Cam Newton, and he can do everything, he's willing to run, he can move around if necessary – that's the first question. The second yeah. question is, how are they going to use him? Right. My favorite thing about the Patriots in general has been that they never fight the tide. The yeah. Patriots are never trying to be what they want to be 
just for the sake of doing F- it. football they, Darwinism. That's exactly right. And they, they yeah. are, they never try to fight it. Yeah. And I think that too many teams don't look at the rest of the league, see what's hard to defend and copy it. Mm. It's too many teams say, mm. this is what we do. Not this is what's going to make us hardest to stop. What, is that I just because that, they're too too like steadfast in their philosophy? Yes. Yeah. yes. There's a rigidity to what they do. Right. And the Patriots, had, the, the, there was a certain rigidity to what the Patriots did systematically. You know, their language was always the same. Right. They're really just grafting different skill sets onto the same scheme, because almost for Brady's sake. The offense was not going to change because it was his. Right. But they still were able to kind of mold and evolve and everything else. So I think that Belichick has probably watched what's happened with playing Lamar Jackson playing Deshaun Watson, playing Cam Newton even. You know, the last time they played Cam, yeah. he had a monster sure. game. Didn't go well, yeah. And just understanding that having this type of quarterback that can run makes my job harder. Right. So I'm going to make the other, a defensive coordinator's job harder by implementing this sort of quarterback. Yeah. So I think their offense is going to look a lot different. I mean, you saw what happened with Jacoby Brissett. The yeah. one game he right. started a couple of years ago, they're doing crazy shit. <laughs> I mean, just right. naked bootlegs and all this stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I just – I think that Josh McDaniels is the type of person he's in the group with Kyle Shanahan, Sean Payton, Andy Reed, just the guys that I can't wait to see what it looks like every week. Mm. I just can't wait to see what they're going to do with the players they have. And if cam is healthy, if that box is checked, I can't wait to see what they actually end up coming up with for him. In, in your experience, is there like, uh, not, not just philosophical, but an actual like personal difference in the personalities you see in the league who are willing to try new things and be more creative and, and get out of the box. Like, is there an actual uh, personality type you see in the league that, that makes that happen and a personality type that leaves it the way it used to be? I don't know if there's a common denominator between all those guys. I'm sure there is, but it's not something that I've ever really figured out. I mean, I think that my favorite play caller and just offensive mind in football is Kyle Shanahan. I've been very open and adamant about that. that. And I I was talking to Mike McDaniel last year at the Super Bowl, who's their run game coordinator. And he was never a coach, never played college football. He was a guy who got a random assistant job with the Broncos because he's from Colorado when Mike was still there and Kyle hadn't moved to Houston yet. And they met him and Kyle was like, that's just a smart guy. And I was writing last year about kind of how Shanahan stays a step ahead, essentially how he innovates right. in order to not get stale. And McDaniel told me something so interesting where he said that because Kyle never played in the NFL and because we didn't, you know, him, Matt, Mike LaFleur, Matt's brother is on yeah. that staff as well. Yeah. He's the passing game coordinator. He said that we feel a constant kind of unceasing pressure to give answers to our players. We want oh. to prove to them all the time that we are able to put them in the best positions possible because we don't have the resumes and just the overall track record of being players and having that innate respect. And I thought that was really interesting. Very. So, and, but at the same time, you look at a guy like Andy Reid, who is a lifer in this league and has been around forever. And he's one of the most innovative people. Yeah, sure. So I think that there are guys who it's like anything else. You know, there are guys who, if you've been around for a really long time, if you've been a head coach, especially move back to being a coordinator, you probably have 10, 15 million bucks in the bank and you stop caring. It's easy to kind of say like, this is my job. I'm coming to punch the clock and I don't really care to stay innovative, to stay up with everything, to be on the cutting edge. And I think that's what sets 
Bill Belichick, Andy Reid, even a guy who's getting a little bit older like Sean Payton apart. I think you have to enjoy the learning process. Yes. You have to enjoy just the pure experience of watching and learning something you've never seen before. I talked to Gary Kubiak, who's about to turn 60, about that last week, and I'm writing a story about his career a little bit. And he was talking about being out of the game and being out of coaching for a couple of years with the Broncos. And he was just saying that I loved watching college. I, that was kind of my job as I was in the consultant role and I would go watch college football and he got tr- like true joy out of it. Right. I think you need a genuine curiosity about the sport in order to keep that going. And I don't know how to necessarily identify that in people, sure. but through conversation, I think that it becomes apparent. It's funny. I mean, it's almost the same in music, right? Like people mm-hmm. assume that success is where you're being, but, but sustaining success is actually the really difficult thing that takes a really not only a creative mind, but a disciplined mind. And you have to start thinking about things differently and thinking about you have to be one step ahead of everybody behind you. If you're going to be the pioneer who's doing something and out in front, you know, some people are Radiohead and some people are just putting out records every two years to go tour, you know, like, like there's a constant push that the great ones have where they have sort of an unrelenting, uh, maybe that's just because they're never impressed with themselves. You know, I think that can be part of it. It's the people who maybe accept too much of their own success and the people who are able to be like, yeah, that was great, but what's next might be the ones who actually can maintain that success. I think it's, it's a combination of attitude and aptitude. Right. I think there are some people that don't necessarily have the mindset to keep innovating. And I think there are some people who just aren't creative enough to keep innovating right and i think and it's you know what it doesn't really matter because you get to the same point but i do think those are two distinct causes it's really interesting to me to just see all the different i think of this offensively because it's just easier for me to understand the defense because i don't know coverages because no one really does (laughs) i and, and i look at offense and i think that you can look at it kind of on one long little kind of spectrum where andy Reid is and sean payton that's the end of the spectrum Where a guy like Sean McVay is, he did the innovative thing, and now he's kind of struggling to stay ahead of the curve as people figure him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have a guy like Arthur Smith, for example, who was fantastic in Tennessee calling plays last year. That offense was not a fluke. It was really fun to watch the things they were doing. But they snuck up on people for 10 games. Right. So now can you do it again? Yeah. And so watching those guys at those different stages and seeing them kind of have to work through the same hiccups and everything else, that part is always really interesting to me. Yeah. Sean McVay is like the guy who who put out a really he put out like the indie record that Pitchfork loved. And then he got yeah. signed to the major and he's just he's had a couple sophomore slumps, you know? He's the MGMT of coaches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's actually that actually works really <laughs> that works well. Perfectly, yeah. Yeah. Um so now I gotta bring this up. So you you played high school. I mean, you played football when you were younger, and I yes. know you've been working age on twelve to eighteen. I know you've been working on getting yourself and your name and your family into the Chicago just Hall of Fame in general. Uh, you know, I know this is the end game that you need your face. You know, up at the uh, you know at the steakhouse with the caricature. You'll get there one day. But I think one thing I didn't realize is that you had two years of tutelage under Chicago's own Mike Singletary. Two years. Yeah. It was, what was that about? I, so he lived in my town 
Okay. They, I think they, I, I believe they lived there even when he was playing. So I think he lives, I, I'm from Barrington, Illinois. It's a very big area, like geographically. He lives in South Barrington. And I think his kids went to Catholic school for you know, middle school and everything else. So I didn't know them at all. Okay. And But when we came to start playing middle school football, it was just a town thing. It wasn't based on school. So his son was my age. He came out in the same time that I did. And Mike wanted to coach. And he eventually ended up being the assistant coach. And my dad was the head coach. Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. So, so, so Mike, so on the pecking order, your father was. My dad, my dad Mike was number one. Wow. My dad was one notch above. That's so, crazy. And I mean, it was, it was really strange. I mean, he, Mike Singletary would just be over at our kitchen table with right. my dad just talking about youth football bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And it was just something. And the two best stories, one he got kicked out of a game once. <laughs> we were playing Wakanda. I'll never forget this. And they, Wakanda? They, yeah, Wakanda. That's, that is the what? town just north of me. <laughs> Spelled differently. Spelled differently. Okay. Uh, and so he gets kicked out of the game, and the ref was almost apologetic. Right. Like, so sorry, like I can't some... believe I'm about to kick Mike Singletary out of this youth football game, but it definitely happened. What was he doing to deserve it that day? I can't remember. It was, I, it was, it seems, it's, innocuous enough for me to not to remember all the details a little mouthy yeah it was just something he was worked up about something and the (laughs) other one was i think it was my second year when i was in eighth grade he came to practice one day in full pads (laughs) like legitimately decked out to play football yeah yeah and i i think my dad asked him to do this as like a motivational (laughs) tactic or something just stupid things that my father thought were like very like oh this is a great idea this will get him yeah and he we were doing tackling drills and it was so so funny when he was like doing the drill and hitting the bag his eyes got super, super wide, like that Mike Singletary thing. Yeah, yeah. So you realize it was just involuntary. Just it was just something it. his body did while he yeah. was on a football field. And seeing the eyes get like that, I was like, this is the scariest shit I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. It was, it was great. And he was awesome. I mean, it, I've you know talked with him a little bit over the years. And my dad eventually got sick. And Coach Mike was really, really very kind about it, very gracious. And you know, he's somebody that it, it was a really good experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I came away from it definitely, you know, respecting him even more than I did previously. He's, he's a good guy. I know it's gone, you know, not super great for him on the coaching yeah. front at certain sure. times, but he was always very good to me. And I always appreciated that. That's really cool. Nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I, you, you know, I imagine my only frame of reference is Mike Dicka in the film <laughs> Kicking and Screaming. Yes, it, it was. It's much better than that. Outside of the ejection, he he was right. a very good guy. Right, right. Now we have to, you know, we have to talk about this just because, again, Chicago. Where where do you sit in the Chicago pizza argument? Are are you a uh, are you this is the greatest pizza in the world, or are no. you open to other things? Oh, I, I think that it is good for what it is. Okay, and I think that it depends on where you get it. Right. Because too often, so when you people, this is this frustrates me, and now I'm going to go off a little bit. Please, people that lump deep dish pizza into one thing, yeah, frustrate me sure. because it, deep dish pizza is not a single entity that looks and tastes and feels the same. Right. So they're like, if you go to Luminati's or Gino's, for oh. example, right? It's deep dish pizza, so you get a little. It's a pan pizza, is really pan what pizza. it is. Yeah. 
And when you get the butter crust and you get it hot and you get it there and you get it well done, which you absolutely should. Okay. It's crunchy. There's texture to it. So There's always get butter. these well done, pan pizza well done? I would say, especially if you're getting it delivered and don't get it cut. Those are the two things I would say because it gets uh, the wateriness in there. Sure. So that's, if you are, that's just standard <laughs> blanket. Good tips. Yeah, you know, whatever. But yeah. well done is always a good idea with, with the pan. Then there's stuffed pizza, which is in like st- places like Giordano's has yeah. stuffed pizza, which to me like is Chicago style pizza. I think. And see, that's that's not that's yeah. the, the Chicago that, stuffed is bad because <laughs> stuffed doesn't have changes in texture. So when you're uh, eating stuffed pizza, it's just a casserole of dough and cheese. So it's when you don't have a texture change, that's why it feels like a cake. Oh, I that's see. why everyone <laughs> okay. that doesn't like it or says that about it, that's what they're talking about. Right. And there's other places, there's a place called Pequod's that I really like and a lot of other people really enjoy where they caramelize the bottom, they caramelize the pan. Mm. So there's cheese around the edges. So it gets this crunch mm. on it. Mm. And then it's on like this focaccia like crust. So it's mm. doughy and pillowy, but you get different textures. So that's uh. the thing. Too many people are getting a stuffed pizza without texture changes. And you think it's just this rock you put in your stomach. Yes. There are better options out there. So that, that is my drawn out Chicago pizza take. That's really fascinating to me because I always thought I was being like Mr. Chicago when I went there by going to Giordano's. That's what it's called, right? Giordano's? People love it. People I mean, like it. It's so I just, good. I just don't like that huge bomb of yeah. dough and cheese. I want something because it's the, tech, the toppings are in there. Right. The toppings are in there. They get soft. That's why I like places that do the pepperoni on the top. Yeah. As you put it in the oven, the pepperoni crisps, so you get that I crunch. See. And so that's the thing is when te- people aren't doing enough to change up the textures, I think you lose something. It is a bomb. I've had some timing errors with Gaslight shows a couple times with Giordano. Oh, where you're yeah. like, oh, let's get it before the show. Nope. No, terrible and then idea. after the show, I'm like, yeah, let me eat three slices of this and then get on a bus at 1.30 in the morning and go somewhere else. Also not good. The timing with Giordano's is never good with playing a show. No, it's, it's if you have to do anything that day, yeah. it, you, you probably should just write it off. Which you just got to commit a day show. to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's usually how it goes. I got right. uh, uh, New Haven style pizza last night and that's what I did. I was like, you know what? I'm just sitting on the couch watching golf. This is when I can get pizza. I don't have to move. Perfect. Perfect. What was your favorite venue in Chicago? Um, what is your favorite venue in Chicago? I know that you're still touring. Venue that's in how, Chicago. I don't know. I was always fond of all the smaller, older clubs. I love the Bottom Lounge. Oh, Bottom Lounge is great. That might be my favorite. I really dig that place. And then what's that great theater, the older theater we played? Um, forget the name. It was really beautiful. Recently? No, it was a while ago. It was a pretty long time ago. Because, you know, we skipped I've seen Chicago guys for at, years. I've seen you guys at Aragon, uh, the Riv, which I don't like. No, the Riv, I, weird. the Riv is the worst. It's my least favorite venue in the city by far. And then I'm not sure where else it would have been. There's the House bottom, of Blues, which I Bottom like. Lounge is where the final scene in High Fidelity is, right? I think that might be right. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I mean, Bottom is great because the stage is elevated. It's really elevated. Yeah. And it's just that back room. Bottom, yeah, I really like Bottom Lodge. I've seen some good shows at Bottom Lodge. That spot is really cool. Reggie's is still going? I don't know about Reggie's. I liked Reggie's. I mean, what was cool, like when we first started playing in Chicago, we um, were having a really hard time with it. And there was none of the smaller venues were giving us good shows. 
So we randomly got hit up by a kid in normal Illinois, That's and we funny. started we started playing either uh, we started playing normal Illinois in some kid's driveway for like the first three years we were doing Gaslight because we couldn't get a real Chicago show until Reggie's popped up. Is that the kid that you ate the quesadillas in, in his quesadilla maker? Quesadillas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I forget you know all these stories. I've told <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I've heard a lot of these stories. It's really funny. I was actually thinking about this today when you mentioned Friday Night Lights because the two things in the world that I yeah. probably know the most about compared to the general popula- population, I mean, football is probably in there. But I'd say Friday Night Lights and the Gaslight Anthem, the two things I know the most about, because I did oral histories about both of them. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you just spend you know a month, two months, three months talking to fifty people about one topic, sure. and just like it seeps into your brain. It's like God, I know a lot about this band, which is was great. It was very fun, but it's just it's strange to think about sometimes. I mean, because of that process, you probably know more about me than than a lot of people I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I'm you sure were getting. If you were getting these stories uniquely from like 25 different people, you probably got a real good read on, oh, that's that kind of dude, you know? It was really fun. I, I just love that process because my favorite part of my job is the reporting. Yeah. Writing is brutal. Like the writing process is not fun and sure. I still don't enjoy it, but reporting is great. There is right. no better feeling when you're talking to somebody on the phone and you know that great anecdote is happening and you're just sitting there fist pumping knowing <laughs> you have this now. The problem is actually having to write it. But with right. all histories, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You literally just chop it all up. It's like it's, it's the best part of it. everything. So I wish I could just do more of them and never have to write again. It's like making a mosaic. It's it's, it's perfect. It's really fun. It's I, I, I miss doing one. It's like a fun thing to kind of chew on in the off season. Well, I honestly, I, I periodically, probably like once or twice a year since it's come out, I go back and reread that thing just because. I appreciate that. It's so much fun for me too, you know, just taking a spin down memory lane like that there's there's i don't know it's i'm i'm so happy that it's just on wax you know i'm glad it's on wax so i appreciate it (laughs) thanks buddy yeah thank you all right big thanks to robert mays there you can read his stuff on the ringer you can follow him at robert mays on twitter uh great follow there big thanks to coming on on the show and if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at the tuneuppodcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. You can follow us at the tuneuphq on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow the big man, he is at Benny Horowitz. One, number one in your mind, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. I'm at Danny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Yeah, that interview is like, you know, I know I've been a vegetarian a long time, but <laughs> when someone talks about smoked meats too long and barbecue, Oh. Do you start to get the the wet palate? Oh, it sounds good. Oh. Sounds good getting some pulled pork. But everybody, thanks for coming in this week. I appreciate it. We'll be back with you soon. And uh, everybody, love everybody. You've been listening to the Tune Up. <laughs>